0: Nothing's going your way. You've had a bad day. It's good to keep it simple. Michelle and Seth say, Take a deep breath from fade
1: to gray. It's mental. Welcome to another episode of Mental. Seth Showalter here. And today I don't have Michelle Collins with me for this interview. She is actually participating all over the country in in bodybuilding competitions. And so, in her absence, I'm having a special guest come on to the show. Her name is PK Langley. How are you doing, PK?
0: Good, good. Glad to be here. Shout out to Michelle. Hope that you do well and come back safe and sound.
1: That's really all I'm concerned about. More than anything else, depending on how she does, it's the fact that it's a huge accomplishment. And I'm very, very excited to hear how she does. And I I have a lot of faith in her. And I'm very, very excited for what she's doing. I couldn't do it. I'll just be honest. There's no way I would ever participate in a bodybuilding
0: competition. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, her and I are the same age. So I have huge like girl body envy for her. Yeah, I do. Do you? She looks amazing. Yeah. She looks amazing.
1: I, I agree. But, but let's, let's talk about you, PK. I'm introducing you onto the show. I know that you are a mental health professional and that you have over 30 years of, of experience in working in the mental health field. Tell us, Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and some of your experience.
0: <laughs> well, actually my family all had group homes on my father's side, so you can say that I have always been around people with disabilities of mm-hmm. of some sort. So I came by it honestly in the field, so I think I was always drawn to folks that were struggling with with different disabilities. So I have worked in Oh, you name it. I have worked in group homes. I have worked in assertive community treatment teams. I have worked in uh, management and supervisory roles. I have worked in assessment and in crisis prevention situations. So I've, it, it's just been a very broad experience training people in the community. Mm-hmm. I've had some amazing success stories and been privileged to watch some human beings. Traverse some very difficult, just challenges in their lives to grow and change, and it's just just been an amazing life.
1: Well, looking at that experience, it's one of the the reasons I wanted to bring you on for today's episode. And I'm not a huge fan of trigger warnings, but I am going to provide one. Coming on to talk about suicide, as for our listeners, you may already know this because I I do I think I have shared my passion, helping people who are struggling with suicidal ideation, but it's a, it's a serious topic and a lot of people are impacted by this. And, and it's kind of seeing that clinical side of this that I wanted to to speak with PK. Do you have um, experience around issues of suicide?
0: Yeah, I've dealt with, situations in, in various contexts over the years and actually was in, in ministry, straddling ministry while I did uh, social work and mm-hmm. one very poignant situation. And, and I think you come across that in the church a, a lot because the church has a great deal of stigma when it comes to suicide.
1: Yes, it does.
0: And and this runs very deeply in the in the church.
1: So I want to mention that the The part about the church, even as a clinical trainer, I have a I do a presentation on suicide. And one of the things we talk about is looking at a protective factor, it can typically be your faith. And it was really interesting because the Pope, recently I don't know which Pope it was. I don't think it's the current one. I think it may have been the previous one, but he came out and he had an announcement that if you die by suicide, you won't go to hell, which is interesting because that's a good thing theoretically, but it also punches a hole right into people's protective factors because having worked on a crisis line, one of the questions I frequently ask people is what's kept you here? We're having this conversation right now and I hear the hurt that you're going through but I'm going to guess that you've been this been you've had these thoughts before or you've been here before. And generally the answer is yes. And when I ask why why are you still here then? What's worked? And the common response is I don't want to go to hell.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely a protective factor in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, we can replace that with, with truth and, and grace and love. Yes. And can, can I tell you the story of, of Nicholas? Because I, I think well, it's a very poignant one. You want yes. me to wait on that one?
1: I, well, I want to hear it. But I also, Michelle would be all over my butt if I didn't do a mental minute with you. <laughs> and I feel like I just kind of jumped oh, directly oh. I jumped directly into you the sure suicide. Did. We went
0: right into I the pond. I went right I went right <laughs>
1: for it because you have so much experience. But I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put a, a stopping point here Pause. just briefly. I want to know how yep. you're doing, PK. How are you?
0: How I'm doing. Well, I I basically talked about being in the washing machine. This, this past week. Mm-hmm. It's been a very difficult time in the country and, and personally. And I think that uh, it's been very challenging, not knowing which way is up and where we're headed from here. Yeah. And politically, <laughs> just just really wondering what the heck is going on. There's just this pause. And I think the, the world is watching. And, and for me, I'm just kind of I feel like I'm in a holding pattern and I don't know how else to describe that. I feel like I'm just in a pause. So I don't mm. feel bad. I don't feel good. I just feel in, in that, in that pause. And I don't know if that makes sense to you, but, but that's the best I have right now. I'm just kind of right there on, on the boat, on the water. And I'm just taking that moment just to, to breathe because I don't know what lies ahead.
1: I think that a lot of people are able to say exactly what now they I don't know if they would come in with the peace, right? Like the taking a deep breath and waiting. I think a lot of people are super anxious, but in regards to feeling like they're stuck yeah. in a holding pattern, I I think I think a, there are a plethora of Americans that feel that way, and I can identify with that as well. I stayed up really late <laughs> Tuesday night of the election and uh, at work uh, Wednesday I was training I, It was one of my favorite class I'm teaching my favorite class the person I have is professional is put together makes the, everything easy it was not stressful but since I hadn't had much sleep and I was stressed due to the election I started to have seizure like symptoms and it scared the crap out of me and I even took off Wednesday afternoon because I had an aura and that taste in the back of your throat that tastes like metal, which is normally a sign that I have a seizure coming and I messaged my boss and I'm like, I'm out and had to take off. Uh, So, I mean, it's affecting everyone's, I mean, I think the stress levels are so high across the board. and, And for me specifically, this election meant a lot to me the outcome of this election means a lot to me. And so I, I yeah I just want to say I identify with everything you shared.
0: It's kind of like it would be like akin to your team winning the World Series mm-hmm. and then everybody stays in the dugout. Yeah. And nothing happens afterwards. And nobody cheers and and nothing happens. And everybody just sits there. And there's this the collective pause and No one comes out. Nobody says anything. There's no cheering in the stands and and everybody's just sitting there. And that's kind of how I, I feel Mm -hmm. right now. And so there's, there's a part of me that's disturbed by that. There's a part of me that's concerned about that. There's a part of me that's waiting to see what's going on and what's going to happen. And I just, I don't want to throw political horseshoes right in this moment but but i am concerned i'm very concerned about about what's going on because in my 54 years of life i've I've never seen anything like this Mm -hmm. and i'm concerned but again i am i think i think at times in crisis i have always become very very much like this because it's the, it's the calm before the storm type of thing where you're preparing you know mm-hmm. like if I need to do something I'm gonna need all of my energy so my body is very much in in reserve mode right now just just waiting I, I think that's where I'm at I, I'm I'm coiled mm-hmm. <laughs> if that's if that's a good term I'm just coiled and with the clients that I'm speaking to, People with anxiety, they tend to be hyperverbal. They, they talk very fast and they, and they, and they say a lot or on the, on the extreme edge of that, people with uh, OCD, they, they can't stop talking and they have to tell you the whole thing. And I've seen uh, a lot of people that are at the height of that lately, you know, so when I'm having conversations, I've, I've noticed that they're taking longer to get things done Mm -hmm. because people are stressed out. And they may not even realize it consciously, but they are. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So. I'm right. I'm right there with you. And
0: <laughs> we're in the, we're in the, the barrel hoping that it's yeah. not going over Niagara Falls, I guess. <laughs> and I'm,
1: again, we're really going to focus a lot of this conversation around the topic of suicide, but really quickly, we had two options. It was either going to be civil war or this silence and we're gonna see what happens. Like Those were the two options. Much prefer the silence and not the war, but I feel like there's, there's, there's things are, that are gonna happen and I'm just kind of anxiously waiting on it. And it's affected my mood, uh, I'll be completely honest. If yeah. you wanna ask, ask how my week has been, I would say that I've been very irritable. Yeah. And I've been yeah. emotional. I've noticed that pretty easily. I've been um, in the evening, as embarrassing as this is, I'm 31 years old and I do have a TikTok account. But I will watch TikToks and just there's some of them that are so emotional. I just cry. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I just need to cry. Um, so yeah. I'm crying to TikToks and I'm watching, you know, sad movies just as a way to kind of get some of that, that pent up fear and anxiety Tension. out. Tension. Because there's just been a lot of it. But overall, I'd say that my week has been well. It's just been, I've been irritable.
0: Yeah. So. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, uh, again, when you've gone through trauma and when you are having trauma responses, sometimes you don't recognize what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I had a conversation with someone that I love dearly this week. And I was trying to explain to them that they were going out and they were doing at risk behavior. And I was trying to explain to them that that was a trauma response, because that's the only thing that makes them feel alive when they get triggered. Mm -hmm. So they go out and they do things that are risky, because it's the only thing that makes them feel alive. And then they come back and they almost brag about it, like I survived again, you know, it's almost like they're delighting over the fact that they just, you know, did all these drugs and, and they're still alive, you know, and it's, it's almost reliving their their traumas. So there's a, there's a lot of people that do different behaviors and, and it's really good to... The process of self-discovery, I think, takes a lifetime and I don't think we ever stop. So I think it's good to pay attention to what we're doing and if we start changing our behavior, it's good to listen to those things and pay attention to them, especially right now mm-hmm. with what's going on.
1: Oh, I agree. I think that that's something that we need to consciously be doing is trying to identify our emotions in any given at any given point there's a a tendency to kind of at least in my life in struggling with major depression a major depressive disorder the majority of my life i just like to i just stuff my emotions in a drawer and what i'm finding is in in this current political climate and everything that's going on if i if I stuff this stuff and I don't talk about it or get it out there, it's going to come back and it eats me. And I had seizure activity on Tuesday due to this stuff. So, I mean on Wednesday. So, I mean, I've got to process. And I think that's something I want to encourage people is I'm not suggesting you get on Facebook and tell the world, but talk to somebody and, and check your own emotions. You know, at any given point, if you're feeling a certain way, take a, take a breath stop for a second take a deep breath and think what am i feeling right now and 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 identify that and be okay with it i think that's important otherwise stuff comes back at least that's been my experience
0: yeah yeah and this is a this is a good segue i think mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. our our topic tonight Agreed. which is which is suicide and understanding that suicide does not discriminate and to me, the the story of Nicholas is, is a is a good story to tell when it comes to suicide because the church has discriminated against people that have committed suicide in the past, and um, in certain faiths uh, it was it was hugely frowned upon, and, and in some it still is, and. I had a a young man that came to me. His name was uh, Nicholas. And when Nicholas came to me, he was probably about 15, 16 years old, Mm -hmm. probably 15. And his best friend in life, Kyle, had completed suicide. And it broke him. Absolutely broke him. And it broke him because he thought his best friend was in hell. Mm Mm-hmm. And it devastated him to the point where he ended up in a mental hospital for three months. And Nicholas came and just, he broke down and, and told me the story about his friend and how he hated God because God would cause his friend to burn in hell forever for killing himself. So I told him the story about Martin Luther, who started the Reformation And one of Martin Luther's uh, first assignments was in this little village where a young man, a young boy, 12 years old, had hung himself. Mm. And at the time, the Catholics would not bury a suicide in with the general population. Right. Because they believed that he basically infected the rest of them and they couldn't rest. So they had a fit about the fact that they didn't want him buried with the general populace. And Martin Luther took a shovel and walked that child to the the graveyard and began to dig and said, God is mercy. Christ is mercy. And he dug that child's grave while the entire village was watching and he buried him. And while he did, he preached this powerful sermon and he said, how is this child Any more to blame for the depression that overtook his life than a man who was overtaken by a robber in the woods. And when he said that, and when I said that to Nicholas, suddenly he realized, you know, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't, it wasn't his friend's fault for taking his life. It was depression that took his friend's life, Mm -hmm. which is the stigma on a lot of people that complete suicide. You know, they get blamed for taking their own lives. So on top of the fact that depression overwhelms them, now they get blamed on top of that, that, you know, they took their own life Mm -hmm. uh, by the people that love them. And some people are still angry with loved ones that took their own lives.
1: Yeah. And that thought, I mean, I would say specifically, at least my experience within Christianity, that's where that came from. Yeah, it it came from the church. And it kind of looks at that whole guilt and shame cycle that I think a lot of people fall into, to where it's like you're, I'm in trouble if I do. And I'm in trouble if I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. Either way, I don't have enough faith. If I'm depressed, I don't have enough faith. And if I complete suicide, I might as well go to hell. You know, there's no, there was never any real source of help. It seemed to just point the finger and blame, and to talk about just not. If we take Christianity out of that, just looking at the fact of having someone you know complete suicide automatically increases the risk that you yourself may have those suicidal thoughts as well. It's actually a risk factor for suicidal ideation is having friends or family who've died by suicide because of the emotional turmoil that it puts you through. Yes. But let's talk, little, let's talk a little bit about, and again, I can talk about this all day, so you might have to put brakes on me at some point, but I do want to have a discussion. Before I jump into to the actual risk factors, I want to talk mm-hmm. about who are the individuals who are at most risk of suicide. Now, so not risk factors, but looking at the population itself. I mean, I know as an LGBTQ individual, I am at an increased risk of suicide. I know that veterans specifically, military personnel, are at a higher risk of suicide than the general population. What do you think about that?
0: The elderly, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the mentally ill, teenagers, women are more likely to attempt uh, suicide. Men are more likely to die by suicide. Mm-hmm. Than than women,
1: that's an interesting stat, and I think a lot of that speaks to lethal means. I, I have a feeling that men in the general population who are struggling with suicidal ideation are more apt towards firearm than they are medications, whereas women are more. And I'm and again, those are just examples, but I I feel like men lean more towards lethal means, and so it's typically like a one and done type situation.
0: Yep. It's the second leading cause of death for people ages 15 to 34. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's on the rise for children ages 10 to 14. And, uh, that's, that's shocking. Um, there are about 425 deaths in that age group every year in the U S. So, I mean, it's, it's on the rise. But that just that just speaks to the fact that it doesn't discriminate. Mm -hmm. It doesn't discriminate. And I think it's something to understand is that it's common. And I hear this from clients all the time, everything's of suicide, everybody. Yeah. And, you know, so that's that's something that's common. But there are it's it's very different from it's different to just think about suicide. Okay, so we're talking about suicidal ideation.
1: The thought of thinking about suicide versus having the intent to complete suicide. There yeah. is a huge difference. We, we can pretty much say with certainty that at least 90% of the population has at one point or other had a suicidal thought. It's actually completely natural, normal, and expected. But just because you have a random suicidal thought doesn't necessarily mean that you are suicidal to the point that you have Mm -hmm. plan a plan on how you're gonna kill yourself, the means to complete it, and the intent. Everyone has a suicidal thought from time to time. And the truth of the matter is if you're experiencing those thoughts, how frequently are you having them? I think that's an important thing to ask. Is it a fleeting thought? Is it passive? Like, oh I, I could kill myself today, or I could as I'm driving, I could totally just drive off the road right now. That I have no intent in doing that. It's just a feeling. It's an emotion I'm having. And and that's normal and expected. The, the issue is where it starts to get serious to the point of I am thinking about actually doing this. I have a day that I'm planning on doing this. I know how I'm going to complete suicide. That is a whole nother game. And it's where things begin to become more difficult. And we should start listening and look at what we can do to help. Because there are a lot of things that people can do that really help in these situations.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, warning signs. Can we talk about that? Like, suicide is preventable. So... We should educate ourselves on the warning signs. It's important to know if somebody is talking about or making plans uh, Mm -hmm. for suicide. The warning signs might be something like somebody making statements like I would might be better off dead or I should just off myself. Or if someone is researching methods to hurt themselves on the internet, seeking ways to hurt themselves, like Buying or compiling medications, uh, locating a gun or a knife, finding uh, dangerous locations, rooftops, train tracks that are easily accessible, giving away important possessions like a prized guitar, phone or computer, saying goodbye to family or friends or writing a suicide note. Mm -hmm. So those are, are things that I can think of.
1: Yeah. Interesting about the suicide note. That's actually I mean, that's true um and that that's definitely mm-hmm. a warning sign but it's it's very uncommon it's it's not common most people don't write suicide notes when they're in that place but Yeah, I think having a family member who's completed suicide increases your risk and things of that nature. But when we talk about warning signs, I just want to clarify here. Because when we say warning signs, what we really mean is that these are things to pay attention to. Because if you're seeing these things, we need to have a conversation. There's risk factors that increase risk. Increase the likelihood that someone would act out on suicidal thoughts. But when we look at warning signs, these are like flashing red, red lights that, hey, we need to have a conversation. It, it may be we need to intervene. Warning signs are, are scary, and it's, they're, the, they're the signs that there is something awry, not just that a person is experiencing depression or that they're feeling down or that they're struggling emotionally. When we talk about warning signs, what we're really talking about is a suicide attempt could be imminent. Like, as you've mentioned, I mean, a lot of the things you mentioned, I mean, is, is late stages of someone who's experiencing suicidal ideation, like buying a weapon, stockpiling uh, medications, things of that nature. I mean, that is scary stuff, and we, sh- we should pay attention to that. If you find yourself in a place where those are things you're thinking about, I, I want to encourage you to take a second and think Why? And, and if it's leading you to a place that it's, I don't want to be here anymore. Well, then I, I want to encourage you, let you know that you're not alone and that there's help available. And that's one of the, the things I really want to, to use this episode for are to talk about coping strategies and ways of getting help. But I, I don't want to jump there too quickly. Other thoughts on warning signs, PK?
0: People that drop weight. Mm-hmm people that aren't sleeping, Mm -hmm. maybe a change in work performance, a change where they withdraw and they are not themselves.
1: Isolation is absolutely huge. Um, And that's not just in relationship to suicidal thoughts, but that's relationship to depression as well. The isolation becomes a very, it becomes something people really do lean towards. Why, Why do you think... We would lean towards isolation when we're feeling suicidal or feeling really down,
0: well, I mean part of of depression in the symptomology of of depression is isolation it's It's mm-hmm. wanting to to be alone, you know, not wanting to engage with other people. I, and it's not deliberate. It's not because you're antisocial and you hate people it's It's literally part of. The disease, it's, uh, it's not deliberate. And the, the, the amazing thing about this is I've had people in my life that, that systematically cut off everybody around them and they don't do it on purpose. And yet the people around them allow it to happen because they can't tolerate it. They um, can't tolerate it. Because when someone is suffering with depression, it's hard to be around someone like that for any length of time. It really is. It's difficult. It is. It it pulls you down. You'll get people that say, oh my gosh, you know, she's a Debbie Downer or oh, wow, you know, he's always depressing. You know, he's always talking about really depressing stuff and I'm just so tired of it, you know, or or we as human beings, we wanna fix everybody. It's hard for us to accept people the way they are when they don't fit into society. I had a guy tell this story one time about seagulls. He said, seagulls are, are one of the most territorial birds. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, they did an experiment once with seagulls. They took and, and tied a red ribbon around one of the seagull's neck and the other seagulls pecked it to death. They have no tolerance for something different. Mm. And as human beings in society, we tend to be that way. We want groupthink. We want everybody to be the same. We don't tolerate people that are different, and we don't embrace people that are different. And when someone is that strikingly different in contrast, and they're depressing, we have a tendency to reject them yeah So we let them slide off the cliff and we don't reach out to them. and uh, and and it's it's the truth. it, it really is. And uh, unfortunately, people with uh, PTSD, they push people away and they don't mean to. And people that are depressed push people away and they don't mean to. They really don't. It's so a it cycle. takes, yeah, it takes someone with tenacious love, or a connection or a familial connection, someone that actually cares to reach in and make a difference and make that connection. Or it takes the person actually fighting and, and like that salmon, you know, that knows it's, it's, you know, wrestling with death to, to kick against the stream and, and fight this thing and reach out and get help, mm-hmm. you know, and for some people, somehow they find the resilience deep within themselves and they reach out and they advocate for themselves because they know I'm about to slide off that cliff man it's coming I'm starting to slide down I need help and they reach out and they dial that number they call that friend they do whatever they they need to do and and they get help and and that's what it takes but unfortunately a lot of times we we don't do the dil- the due diligence that we need to do for people that are that are struggling. Oh, agree. It's just the truth.
1: Yeah. Well, and I, I I would even apply that to professionals. Don't always do what they need to do either. Something I think we talked about this in the first episode on depression, but irritability is I think <laughs> one of the things that really makes working with and dealing with people who are struggling with depression just depression hard and i think that irritability increases and then when you add in the ptsd they're used to it and again i'm speaking as i'm speaking generally and i don't mean to i need to speak personally for me personally i go through cycles and the same thing happens over and over and over again in regards to rejection and all of that and so A lot of times, a person is struggling, they need the support they have, and when their support leaves, it in a way proves to them that they shouldn't be here. And I think that's where the social support network is indeed so important. We know statistically that one of the number one protective factors is a strong support system whether that be friends your church your pat well church and pastor are the same thing friends church family uh mental health professional a primary care physician you know when we think about the things that social are networks social uh, yes yep. support is the factor behind all of this that really, truly helps. And I don't mean that you go and you hang out with your friends and you sit on the couch and you cry and you talk about all your problems every day. That's not what we're talking about here. If you need to do that and you have a friend that it's okay doing it, I encourage you to do that. But even just being in the presence of someone else can make a world of difference. I remember when I moved to St. Louis four or five years ago, I didn't know anybody. Really. I didn't have any I didn't have any friends. Cause I just moved to the city. And I would end up going, this is pre-COVID. I would go to coffee shops. And just being in a coffee shop where I was surrounded by other people, I felt more I felt more connected. That connectedness is absolutely vital to have the resiliency to take those steps forward. And yeah, I just went on a soapbox and support system. But it is it is important.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. I met Ellen, a 68-year-old woman.
1: Oh, you got me all excited. Through Facebook. When you said Ellen, I just thought you were talking about Ellen DeGeneres. And I was like, I don't know why you're bringing that up now, but you met Ellen? (laughs) Okay, continue Uh, on.
0: Ellen, listen, listen. Ellen, Ellen, 68 years old, rejected in every social network she had ever tried to enter because she was borderline... She struggled with all kinds of stuff and every social network she had ever tried to engage in and enter in Ellen had gotten rejected from because Mm -hmm. Ellen was not mentally stable. Okay. Just, just not just, you know, borderline. She had all kinds of stuff going on, but I tell you what, I gave Ellen a shot and spent time with Ellen and said, Ellen, if you want to come down, and help us with a move. Go ahead. You're going to come down. And this was at the ta- at the same time that we brought a guy from Australia hmm. to help us move from Austin to Florida. Mm-hmm. And Ellen came down, and this guy came from Australia, and Ellen uh, came from New York. And uh... socially awkward is all get out, you know. Wore black socks all the way up to her knees and and black shorts and I mean just real real socially awkward but bless her heart you know she was there to help and you know what I'm gonna give her every opportunity and almost wrecked a vehicle within like 20 minutes of being on the road <laughs> and, and I called uh, Ellen. And Ellen uh, started rocking the truck back and forth, just trying to answer the phone, and the tires were coming up off the highway. It was bad. It was scary. And the Australian guy ended up driving after that, and and poor Ellen. But anyway, she got rejected because they wanted to fix her, and they couldn't fix her, so they got rid of her. And Ellen struggled with those suicidal thoughts and that depression, And she kept saying to me over and over and over again, but I'm better now. I've been working on me and I'm better now. I'm better now, right? I'm better now. And I finally just said, you know what? So what if you're nuts? So what if you're crazy over the moon, Ellen? Who cares? Who cares if you're upside down, crazy kookaloo? You are who you are. It's okay to be who you are. Mm. You know? And and a lot of people are so focused on trying to change themselves that they get caught up in these societal frameworks. And that's what drives them to this, you know, suicidal ideation, you know, because they feel like they don't fit in. They'll never fit in. And, and then they end up feeling like, you know, what's the point?
1: Right. And so I'm going to mention something here. Yes. In the suicide presentation that I do at work. Um, I have a slide that really looks at who is the most at risk of an attempt and who is the least at risk of an attempt. And it's actually striking. The people most likely to complete suicide are Caucasian males, ages 30 to 45. And the least likely to complete suicide, African American women, 65 years and age and older. Wow. And and it's interesting because I have a whole discussion on this and what you just mentioned about feeling like a failure and feeling like you didn't meet society's expectations, white men are the most privileged individuals in our society and yet they complete suicide more than any other ethnic population in this country. Wow to kind of illustrating that point of feeling like you've failed on society's terms, the pressures that our society places on people. And then we try to, you know, we try to make that fit. I mean, hello, I am a flaming homosexual and I tried to be, you know, I tried to make everything fit for so long until I get to a point, I just had to accept myself for who I am. And I think, I think that there's a big, I think that that's something to talk about. That the people who are the most privileged in our society attempt suicide the most yeah wonder why
0: and this and and this is this is displaying severe overwhelming emotional pain or distress you Mm -hmm. know frequent crying panic angry outbursts you know depression extreme sadness all these things are precursors to like suicide suicidal thoughts ideation planning intent and all that and I, I, think, I think the pressure and the stress that gets put on people is definitely a precursor to suicidal ideation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's something that just being there for someone, and to me this can de-escalate suicidal ideation so quickly, is to be there, mm-hmm. to let somebody know you care, to let somebody know they matter, that they're important, that their life means something. And one of the things that I love to say is, hey, Joe Schmo, you know, you're the only Joe Schmo in the entire universe. You're the only spice in this entire universe that is uniquely Joe Schmo. And there is no other Joe Schmo in this whole universe that has your unique flavor. And if we lose you, we lose that. We need you. We need who you are. So I think when we communicate the value that someone has to them and encourage them, I think that that helps to encourage them that they're important and they matter. And that's what somebody needs to hear in those moments when they're struggling with this, that they have a purpose. Because when we lose our sense of purpose, that also leads us down that dark alley Mm -hmm. and, and pretty quickly.
1: And it's interesting because in both our illustrations, we've talked about issues like feeling rejected by societal norms. And then we've also talked about social rejection from your friends and your peers. And I think that rejection, just that word rejection, I think it's at the crux of suicidal ideation. Because that rejection—it's when it turns internal, right? It's so when we take the rejection that we've experienced in the world and we turn it on ourselves, and we don't believe that we have worth. It's at that point, suicidal ideation can can sprout. And I think I really liked how you mentioned how to help someone who's really struggling: be there, just be there. You don't have to. You don't have to know anything in regards to therapy, in regards to mental health, you don't have to be another human being. That's all. That's what we're talking about. It's not being alone because it's in that aloneness. It's in the isolation that depression can sprout a whole line of lies. And being able to have people around you that can kind of say, hey, you know, that's not true. What you're saying right now doesn't actually jive with reality. You're actually worthy of something. Did, you haven't had any accomplishment. No one likes you. Were were you there last week? Because I was in that meeting. You know, just being able to shine a light on some of those distorted thoughts is very, very helpful. But what I, what I mean here is you don't have to have a, men- a mental health degree. You don't have to be a professional. Just be a human being and show compassion. That's what we need in our world right now more than anything else. And that's what we really need for one another. And I'm curious to see really how this pandemic and this election and all of that's been happening right now in our in the United States is going to impact people's mental health moving forward. I think that, yeah, I'm interested to see those stats. But yeah. when we think about things to keep in mind um, of how we can be of help, what else do you have in mind? What other thoughts?
0: Well... When, when we think of what to do for people, there are myths, you know, yes. that by, by asking, are you thinking of hurting yourself that you may somehow put the idea in somebody's mind? That's an absolute myth. So asking somebody if they're okay or if they're thinking of killing themselves or are you thinking of suicide? That is not an, uh, you know, an inappropriate thing to ask. You can absolutely ask somebody that, especially if they're a youth that is not putting the idea in their heads. Children are not stupid. They hear that every day, I'm sure, in in some uh, uh, way, shape, or form from their friends. They've already heard that idea, so it's not going to be a new idea for them. You can express your concerns about what you're seeing in their uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. It seems like you're really kind of down lately, Joe, you know, and that kind of worries me. and. What you said about wanting to maybe hurt yourself, that concerns me. Secondly, listen and listen non-judgmentally. Very, very important. Do not judge them, especially youth and, and young adults. They need your support. Don't dismiss them as being silly dramatic or overreacting or emotional don't dismiss how they're feeling or say oh come on you know it's not that big of a deal you know it's just a grade right. you know don't, don't
1: minimize it
0: exactly don't interrupt them or try to say that things are not as bad as they think let them talk about their thoughts and feelings and be a good listener you know just let them give them space to communicate
1: and i'm going to share what you going to really- say quickly a a story here because I really liked how you mentioned the myth around... Sorry, I'm kind of... I always just go off what you say and then I add to it because there's just so much here. I love it. But (laughs) in in, in asking that question... Okay, first I'm going to address the myth. So the myth... And that if I asked a person if they're having thoughts of suicide, I will somehow implant that thought into their brain. That is the myth that is out there. And it is 100% incorrect. In fact, if they are not experiencing suicidal ideation, and you ask that question, people aren't alarmed. They're like, no, I'm not. I'm just feeling depressed right now. Like people will, people will easily explain that and let that go. If someone is struggling they Right now, telling someone that they're having suicidal thoughts is perhaps one of the scariest things that person has ever considered in their life. Asking them that question gives them the permission to talk about it, which is the one thing that they've been fearful to do. So I very much want to encourage that we ask that question. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated because I want to come at this from like a mental health professional, but I just want to mention one piece, and it may or may be, I want you to feel it out with your personal relationship with your friend. But from my side as a mental health professional, there's a specific way I want you to ask that question. (laughs) And that, well, you can ask it several ways, but one way do not. Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Or are you having thoughts of suicide? A lot of professionals and people will ask, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? It's essentially a way of softening that, the question, but there is a big difference between hurting yourself and killing yourself. Um, at my job, we had someone call in who was suicidal, and the clinician asked, are you having thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself? And this individual said no. He got off the phone and he attempted suicide. We had to do an adverse incident report on that. And we asked him, we asked you the question, why didn't you answer? And his response was, you asked me if I was having thoughts of hurting myself. I was not having thoughts of hurting myself. I was having thoughts of killing myself. You asked the wrong question. So I understand that it asking this question is hard. It's scary. But I very much want to encourage you to do it because it very well may open the door for this pretty person being able to talk about what's really going on and subsequently getting the help that they need. We need to be comfortable with asking that question. Well, I went on a little bit of a tangent. (laughs)
0: No, no, not at all. Not at all. I think that when you're talking to somebody that's hurting, you can reflect on what they share. Let them know that you're hearing them, that you're mm-hmm. listening to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't be afraid to repeat back what they're saying. Summarize what they're saying. It sounds like you've been really sad or angry over arguments that you're having with your girlfriend or or whatever. Uh, don't pass judgment on what they're saying. Just let them know that you've been listening and you understand or you don't you don't necessarily understand, but that you are listening and that you hear that they're upset and let them know that they're not alone, that you're there.
1: And I want to talk about really quickly, two types of listening because there's a difference. Uh, We may Oftentimes, generally in my life, especially if I'm doing an episode with Michelle Collins, this is what I do. Listen, I listen to respond. All right. I am just waiting so that I can come back at her and tell her how she's wrong. That, that's really our show. And I'm just so happy to have PK here today. But there is a difference between listening to respond and listening to listen. And when you're talking to someone who is feeling down, when you—and I don't even mean if they're suicidal—if you're talking to anyone who is struggling, all right, your response is not near as important as what that person is saying. In order for us to have an appropriate response, in order for us to be able to come back with compassion, empathy, and actual understanding of what's going on, is we have to actually hear what they're saying. Not just coming up with our next line, and so I just want to mention that too. Be human. Listen to what they're going through. It's absolutely vital, and
0: and don't be a fixer. Correct. Don't try to fix them.
1: And that is actually really triggering for a lot of people. Um, they've been they, people mm-hmm. have been trying to fix them. As as PK has mentioned in several of her stories, people have been trying to be you know people have been trying to fix a lot of. People she's worked with for a long time. My parents sent me to California to gay straight camp in order to fix me. Right? Fix is a really, really bad word. It implies that there is something wrong with the person. That they are in somehow they are flawed and they are not valid. We don't want to fix. We want to support.
0: It can be very uncomfortable when somebody is down. And they're not feeling good and mm-hmm. they're depressed and they're having suicidal thoughts. Yeah. It can be really uncomfortable. You wanna minimize it. You wanna oh, it can't be that bad. You know, you you want to do all the things to push the easy button. You wanna make it better. You wanna, you know, uh put the band-aid on it, you wanna fix it. And and that's our propensity as human beings. We wanna make it better, we wanna we want to make it all better. We want to walk away and, and have done our good deed for the day. And that's not necessarily going to happen when somebody is feeling bad. We need to hold space. And, and if you keep that in mind, whenever you have somebody that's close to you that's going through something, hold space. Think about that. Just think about just for a second. Hold space. Let them talk. Let them express themselves. Don't hold on. Don't, don't fix them. Just, just let them talk. Oh, wow. Wow. That sounds very difficult. Mirror what they're saying. Mirror it back to them. Give them a moment. Let them stay right there just for a moment. Just let them stay right there. I know it's going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to feel awful for a second, but stay right there with them. Stay right there. And let them express it because it's going to hurt for a little bit. But you're going to show your friend, look, I'm right here. I'm right in the trenches with you. I'm willing to stay right here with you just for this moment, buddy. I got you. I'm not going to try to bandage you and pick you up or anything. I'm going to stay right here with you in this moment. And we're going to do this together. That's a friend. That's mm-hmm. somebody that cares about you. And that's what you do with somebody that is, is thinking about hurting themselves.
1: It's the support. Yes. It's the support. That is what keeps people here. It's knowing that there is someone else who cares because one of the biggest distorted lies from depression is that no one cares. And so hold. Yes, I'm just repeating you. I agree.
0: (laughs) Hold space. Hold space. So listen. 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. 1-800-273-TALK. It is 24-7. It is free. It is confidential, trained crisis workers that can assist youth and young adults, and they'll take care of you. I also have another one. If you text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741 741, you can get an immediate crisis text line help. Or if you are really, really in a pickle, you can always call 911 or you can take that person to the ER or an urgent care center right away to get help. If you are in a real pickle and you need help, don't be afraid to call 911.
1: And also, um, I'd like to shout out the Trevor Project. Um, If you are LGBTQ and you're under the age of 25 and you're struggling, and I don't care, it doesn't even have to be depression. If you're experiencing, wow, it doesn't even have to be suicide. Um, If it's depression, if you're just feeling down and you need someone to talk to, Suicide Lifeline, um, I hate the acronyms. So it's 1-800-273-8255. And if you're LGBTQ and under the age of 25, reach out to the Trevor Project uh, they are also 24-7, and their phone number is 866-488-7386. And then also, just to mention this, if you do reach out to Suicide Lifeline and you are struggling, inquire about their follow-up program. Suicide Lifeline does follow up the individuals who have been experiencing suicidal ideation, 48 hours after the phone call and two weeks later just to check in and see if there's any way that they can anything that they can do to help you get connected to ongoing mental health services, as well as reviewing a crisis uh, safety plan that you can turn to uh, for support. And we have found that that safety planning can really make a big difference. So just know that there is always help available. They are one text or phone call away. I And again, I just want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. I know that this is a pretty serious topic. And we kept it a little unconventional in that we're just trying to chit-chat about this. Because we want this to be authentic. We want this to be real. And it is my hope that in listening to this episode, you've heard PK's heart, you've heard my heart, that you know that there are people who care. And and I just wanna thank you for listening. If you did enjoy this episode, you can check out more of Mental's content on Facebook as well as on the Mental feed. And if you are interested in contact with both Michelle and I and some of the perks, which include bonus content, you can become a patron. Um, It is patreon.com backslash mental podcast. And if you do want merch, because it is about to get cold, winter is coming, ladies and gentlemen, check out storefrontier.com backslash FTG network to find uh, mental merch along with other shows on the network. And PK, I had a really good time talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure, Seth. Thank you so much. I enjoyed my time with you here today. It was special. Thank you. This is the reedcast. Parents go and they release
1: the Hellions with no manners, respect, or anything else onto this part.
0: Welcome to the Reedcast We're talking about being naked. <laughs>
1: Thing in the bible who always gets the shaft is right. the person following the leader
0: so for all you parents out there it doesn't matter how you raise your kids <laughs> they might just end up the opposite of what you taught them well find us on stitcher itunes and iheartradio